Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world, spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com, music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You're listening to Rainbow Soul from Blake Radio. Topic was supposed to be Medicaid cuts. That means government not funding Medicaid is delaying breast cancer diagnosis in the wealthy. How preposterous is that? Is the government also subsidizing breast cancer therapy for the wealthy? So since I have another topic I really want to talk to, I'll cut to the chase on that topic. Um, what happens to your doctor? is your doctor is not practicing medicine, but insurance. And when a government program like Medicaid or Medicare makes a policy change, that doctor will make that policy change for all of his patients, even patients that are not on that particular insurance plan, because, of course, it's a lot to keep straight, all these different insurances. And also what happens is private insurances will all, a lot of times, follow suit. And so this is the fundamental danger of insurance, which is, but even if you have top-of-the-line, top-notch insurance, I mean, you're paying through the nose, by golly. I mean, thousands of dollars a month for your health insurance. Your health care is really no different than if you're on a government welfare program. And this is why it's so, 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 so important to not have insurance, number one. Number two, stay away from the doctor if you can. But even worse, uh, number three, if you must go, for Christ's sake, pay cash and um, let the doctor know what you want. All right, so that's... Uh, a nice, entertaining topic, but there's something even more important. When I came across this, I said, oh, my gosh, here it is, straightforward, black and white, concussion by the medical industrial complex itself. This is a, a email that's gone out to, to doctors as of September 5th. So you can see I've been trying to get this show in the lineup earlier. I just said, you know what, I can't wait. I have got to cover this topic. Eleven drugs you, the doctor, should seriously consider de-prescribing. They're telling a doctor that there are drugs out there that are so dangerous and so ineffective that if he's already prescribed them, he should stop. 
stop right now. Don't prescribe these drugs because they are so dangerous and they are so ineffective. But wait, but wait. Weren't these drugs approved by the FDA? How else could the doctor prescribe them? Aren't these drugs paid for under drug prescription insurance programs? Haven't they gone through a rigorous testing process? How is it that drugs that went through this incredible process now in wide use no longer need to be prescribed? So let's take a look at these drugs. And if you're on any of them, your doctor has already been informed that your drug is so dangerous and so ineffective, he should actually take you off of it. So what we're going to do is go over these drugs. And then the next thing we're going to take a look at is how many of these drugs are actually in the top 10 most prescribed drugs? Yep, that's right, top 10 most prescribed drugs. So let's first let's take a look at what the medical industrial complex says is the problem. Okay, so the problem, Papali pharmacy problem. This is what they're telling your doctor, okay? So they're telling your doctor. So you just pretend you're sitting on your doctor's shoulder while he's consuming this information, and you see what you think you would do and what you think ought to be done and maybe what you as a patient should do. Uh, I'll give you a hint. Arguing with your doctor is not on the uh, list of things to do about this. So polypharmacy is described as taking five or more medications a day. One survey found that more than 50% of female Medicare beneficiaries, that's ladies over uh, 65, took five or more medications daily. These are not necessarily poor ladies, right? These are all people who've earned the right to receive Medicare. By golly, they paid into it. With 12% taking 10 or more medications daily. And it's a great opportunity, they say, to reduce the number of medications taken by patients with the potential to reduce both side effects, uh, it's a euphemism for harm, and drug interactions, uh, another euphemism for harm. So this is going to reduce harm and more harm by reducing the number of medications taken by patients. And so what they're saying very nicely to your doctor is, you're harming people with all these medicines. You should stop some. Let's see. Soul softeners. There is no evidence that colase, sulfate sodium, is effective for what it's used for, which is softening stools or preventing constipation. Now, I'll tell you, the people taking this uh, stool softener will tell you otherwise. 170 adults with chronic constipation received 5.1 grams of sodium, uh, a, a low dose, by the way, or 100 milligrams of docusate twice daily. Sofolium is safe and superior in its effect on stool frequency, stool water content, stool output, and the combination of several objective measures of constipation. And so, compared with baseline, psyllium increased stool water content by 2%. That's not much. Versus 0.01% for docusate. And stool weight was increased in the group treated with psyllium by 359 grams a week, which is basically two bowel movements, versus 271 grams weekly from docusate-treated patients, again, to bowel movements. So although these two are statistically different, as a matter of fact, they're not that uh, different. But what you're saying is stop prescribing colase. Well, what's going on here? This is stool softener, someone who's constipated, and they might really have a dehydration problem. They might really need to drink more water. That's really what needs to happen here. And so, again, we have a situation where we've got the problem, ineffective drug, solution, and psyllium, a lot of folks are intolerant of it because bacteria eat it, it causes gas, causes bloating. So the real answer here is drink more water, 
Another answer, of course, is Vitality Capsules, which, by the way, are not on sale right now, but they are available at vitalitycapsules.com, and they do work uh, much better than this. You can definitely uh, get more stool volume than this out of Vitality Capsules. They're back in stock. Next, antibiotics before dental procedures. Totally ineffective. Totally ineffective. And so there are changes to the antibiotic prophylaxis is what it's called, for prevention of endocarditis, that's infections in the heart. So doctors should be prescribing far fewer antibiotics before dental cleaning procedures. Now, this is like almost stupid. Why? Because the dentist tells the patient, you need an antibiotic. Go to your regular doctor and get a prescription for it, right? So the patient is kind of held hostage here, like you can't have this dental procedure unless you have antibiotics. The patient hasn't got a whole lot of input here. And so even though there's no evidence to support the practice, of using antibiotics before dental procedures, this practice is still in place. But wait, wait, they're saying the dental association has recommended against this. So what do you do? I say this advice may not apply to transplant patients and the decision to premedicate for invasive dental procedures and selection of the appropriate regimen should be made on a case-by-case basis. But antibiotics before dental procedures, before many procedures, is a prime cause of antibiotic-resistant infections. So this is actually a pretty dangerous practice. But it gets better. Proton pump inhibitors, also known as PPIs. Among the potential problems associated with proton pump inhibitors are reduced absorption of calcium, reduced thyroid hormone absorption, Acute and chronic kidney injury, read that dialysis. Increased risk of clostridium difficile infection, read uh, antibiotic-resistant infections. And death, death, death. Some patients do need these long-term, and they give you a list of those people. I personally don't agree with that. I don't think anyone needs these long-term or at all. However, many other patients are prescribed PPIs. They're even over-the-counter now. They're prescribed for stress ulcer prevention in hospitalized patients, but they're not needed after discharge. Uh, duh, they're not needed in the hospital. Another common use of proton pump inhibitors is for abdominal pain without a recognized source, which is a very bad thing, by the way. So proton pump inhibitors inhibit the production of acid. Acid protects you from parasites. So prescribing proton pump inhibitors Leaves your body wide open to, paradise, to parasites. It's like, okay, parasites, have your way with my body when you take a proton pump inhibitor. Now, this is where we take a look at uh, the 10 most prescribed drugs. And if you look at this list, number four, Nexium, is a proton pump inhibitor. Yep, 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 yep. A proton pump inhibitor. And so we have a drug which should be deprescribed, which you should stop taking if you're taking it. And it's one of the top 10 drugs prescribed in the United States. In fact, it's number five, number, uh, number four, number four. 15.2 million prescriptions every month are written for this drug that your doctor is told he should take you off of if you are on it. How about that? How you like them apples? Now, what should you take instead of a proton pump inhibitor? Of course, this is not medical advice. I accept no liability. If you, if you stop your proton pump inhibitor, it is a personal decision that you're making. Okay, having said that, disclaimer, 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 
You can just chew on fennel seeds. Chew on fennel seeds. Can you believe that? Chew on fennel seeds. How safe are fennel seeds? You can easily chew on one or two cups a day and will actually improve the condition, which over time you will not need the fennel seeds, unlike the proton pump inhibitor, which creates its own need. What's next? Statins. Statin, cholesterol-lowering drug. Cholesterol-lowering drug in a person who has not had a heart attack. Yeah. There has been a significant increase in the use of statins for primary prevention. That means for people who have never had a heart attack. But there is a lack of evidence on the benefits of statins for this indication in patients over the age of 75. So statins can be associated with muscle symptoms, can interact with several drugs, increasing toxicity, toxicity, read harm, danger, death, and elderly patients. There's a difference in the potential benefits of statins for secondary after they stroke or heart attack versus primary. The risk versus benefits of primary prevention is a particular concern in patients over the age of 80. Now, we can just dial it down and realize that of any age, do you really need a statin? Let's take a look at statins. Top 10 prescribed drugs. Number two. Number two prescribed drug is, you guessed it, a statin. Crestor. That's impressive. That is impressive. That a drug which should be no longer prescribed is the number two bestseller in the category of drugs. I'm impressed even if you're not. The next drug that should be deprescribed is benzodiazepines and Z-drugs. So let's see. Benzodiazepine and Z-drugs. So benzodiazepine is strongly correlated with increased risk of fall. Insomnia, a common concern in older patients, is often managed with drugs, but the chronic use of benzodiazepines and the Z-drugs, Zolpidem, Zaliplon, and Aziplon, should be avoided in elderly patients. Risk of stacking of side effects and risk is very real. Many elderly patients are on selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and may also be taking a benzodiazepine to treat the insomnia caused by the SSRI. So all three of these drugs increase the risk of the elderly. But but wait, let's take a look and see about the drugs being prescribed. These are top ten drugs for all uh, all people, not just um, uh, the elderly. But these drugs are. Um, a problem because it increased the falls in the elderly, which means, well, hip fractures, which means, well, hospitalization, which means, well, increased chance of death. So it's kind of like a, a, um, a cascade effect. All right. None of these drugs are in the top uh, 10, though, but you should know that for years and years, Valium was in the top 10 prescribed drugs. Next is beta blockers. These are used for high blood pressure. And now they're um, recommending them for three years after a heart attack. Take it for three years. Or acute coronary syndrome, chest pain. In all patients with preserved left ventricular function. 
So if your heart works, hey, block it with a beta blocker. Get it to stop working. And so the Class 2A recommendation, the guidelines stated it was reasonable to continue beta blocker therapy beyond three years in patients with a history of heart attack or chest pain. However, more recent data has not shown any long-term death benefit with prolonged beta blocker use. In other words, people aren't living any longer. It's supposed to prevent your second, your next heart attack, acute coronary syndrome. But the data showing this new data, repeating these results, shows that this is not helpful. And so it calls into question the immediate benefit of beta blocker use after heart attack in an area where reperfusion therapies are common. In other words, all their alternatives. Furthermore, beta blockers are not very powerful anti-high blood pressure agents and are less effective than other options for treatment of hypertension in the elderly. Atenolol, the beta blocker, is particularly ineffective for prevention of negative outcomes from hypertension. Let's take a look at this. We have a, blo- a drug, a beta blocker, which you're now saying is, 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 is not helpful. Well, not helpful. And they're saying the other research showing it was helpful can't be reproduced. Well, this is uh, polite speak in medical terms for, you know, those other tests may have been falsified or faked or otherwise manipulated. And so the outcome, which is the recommendation of this drug, is something that is not to be followed. This is shocking. I can't tell you the number of people on beta blockers. I've tried to stop the beta blockers. They say, oh, Dr. Daniel, my cardiologist, I need these beta blockers for my head or neck. Oh, Dr. Daniel, I need this beta blocker for blah, blah, blah. I'm like, it's a beta blocker. It weakens the heart. How can weakening the heart help make the heart better? It can't. And of course, and this uh, information now says, well, shrug, shrug, shoulder shrug. Now let's all do it together. Shoulder shrug. Lift those shoulders up. Shrug. Shoulder shrug. I guess it doesn't. I guess it doesn't. And here it is. It says, you should stop these drugs. And these are especially difficult drugs to stop. They have to actually be tapered off. But they're of no benefit, whatever. And they're saying these drugs aren't even helpful for blood, high blood pressure. Like, dude, what are they good for? It's like war. It's good for absolutely nothing. All right, what else? What else? Asthma drugs. Asthma drugs. Drugs for asthma or emphysema. In a recent study, one-third of patients with a current diagnosis of asthma had normal respiratory tests and had no problems with weaning off asthma medication. The same high rate of incorrect asthma diagnosis has been shown in several other studies over the past year. The major culprit in misdiagnosis was not using spirometry to make the diagnosis. In other words, let's just, let's just call a spade a spade. A lot of folks who don't have a problem, who are perfectly healthy, are taking asthma drugs. And wouldn't you know it? The number three prescribed drug is an asthma drug, Ventolin. The number five prescribed drug is an asthma drug, Advir. So these drugs for asthma and emphysema that are being prescribed for folks who are perfectly healthy are literally the number three and number five prescribed drugs in the United States. So these drugs are being prescribed for imaginary conditions. So just for your, in case you haven't been keeping track here, number two, number three, Number four and number five of the top five prescribed drugs in the United States, four out of five, your doctor is now being told he should stop, he should take you off of them if you're on them and not prescribe them to new people. This is less than a 20% accuracy rate. This is 80% of the top five drugs 
Your doctor's now being told he shouldn't shouldn't be prescribing this. How cool is that? This is a good area in which practice to practice de-prescribing. Some patients with asthma or COPD are misdiagnosed. Others may not have active asthma, and medications could be weaned. Are you getting the picture here? If you're taking a drug that has side effects, one of which is death, and you don't need the drug in the first place, then taking a drug can only harm you. And this is the position many Americans find themselves in. Drugs for urinary incontinence. If you're wet in your pants, maybe you're wearing a diaper. The drugs, darifenacin, fesoterdine, oxybutynin, soliferinacin, tolterodine, and tropium, all ineffective. Used for stress urinary incontinence have a small benefit. Small benefit? <laughs> that would be minuscule. That would be no benefit. These drugs have strong properties and can cause major side effects, especially in the elderly. For example, oxybutynin, that's the one that um, they use a lot when I was uh, in training, resolved urinary incontinence in 114 of, of 1,000 treated patients. But 63 of the 1,000 stop the treatment because of side effects. And so really, you've got a benefit of 50 per 1,000. That's a benefit of 1 in 20. That's not a lot of benefit. Oh, I like this one. Cholinesterase inhibitors for Alzheimer's disease. This is another drug class with very modest benefits and many disconcerting side effects. And so Alzheimer's disease, uh, donazepil, most commonly prescribed uh, in the class, should be stopped. For every patient who obtains a modest benefit from this drug, 11 will be treated but have no benefit. Side effects are nausea, decreased appetite, weight loss, fainting, and urinary incontinence, pissing their pants, for which the prior drug, ineffective drug, was prescribed for. You're getting the picture here. So some patients may even be started on this agent for the urinary incontinence caused by the cholinesterase inhibitor they're taking. So you now have one ineffective drug being prescribed for the side effects of another ineffective drug. Are you getting the snowball effect here? I mean, is it, are you feeling it? Muscle relaxants for back pain. The evidence of muscle of benefit is not enough for the use of muscle relaxants for the treatment of of acute or chronic low back pain. This class of medication produces a great deal of side effects and is especially dangerous in the elderly. Toxicity, that means danger and poisoning, is increased when combined with alcohol. So if you're taking muscle relaxant for back pain, not a good idea, really at any age. What should you do instead? Put some Vicks Vapor Rub back there. Or if you don't like Vicks Vapor Rub, I get that. Try putting some turpentine back there. Yep, put it right back there. And then, of course, they throw this in the mix, and it's supplements. And then what do they show you? They show you a supplement counter at your local uh, big box store. So many patients take over-the-counter supplements. Taking a multiple vitamin is particularly common, although no benefit in heart disease or cancer prevention has been shown. However, a lot of benefits have been shown, by the way, in taking uh, a multiple vitamin. Calcium supplements are also unlikely to benefit postmenopausal women. This is true. 
Calcium benefits have been shown to have absolutely no benefit whatever in someone who has osteoporosis of whatever age. In the largest study to date, calcium and vitamin D supplementation slightly increased bone density and it increased the frequency of kidney stones, but did not reduce fracture risk. That's, that's true. Calcium supplementation does inhibit thyroid hormone absorption. So I read this to be don't take any supplements your doctor recommends. And this is definitely unfortunately true. Uh, when I was in the practice of medicine, we doctors were told to recommend supplementation, and the supplements we were told to recommend never, ever worked. So if your doctor recommends supplements for you, ask that doctor, um, did you learn about this supplement at a continuing medical education conference, or is this part of the standard of care? If he says yes, then don't take the supplement. It's proven, certified, useless, like all these other things that we've talked about today. These are all things that have proven useless. So, the take-home message here, then, is drugs that are prescribed in high amounts for long periods of time, certified by the FDA, are dangerous and useless. And if four out of the top five fall in this category, what do you think about the fifth one? Not only that, what do you think about the other uh, top 100 that are prescribed? Uh-huh. Yep, sad to say, sad but true, it's irrelevant. Well, that brings us to the close of our half hour. Um, so I'd like to say go to vitalitycouncils.com. Check out not only Vitality Councils, but your free Candida Cleaner Report. And that is it for our show today. Remember, remind your doctor to de-prescribe. As always, think happens.